0: Good morning, good morning to you and our authors and our listeners and...
1: Even to the books that we've got, (laughs) uh, etc. Because books tell a story and have a character and personality of all of their own. As does the book in my novel, which is called The Book of Dirt. Now, exploring one's heritage is a rite of passage for anyone addressing their past and ancestry. For Bram Presser, it means delving into his Jewish faith, its traditions and necessarily the Holocaust. So, Bram, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Now, The Book of Dirt is the title of what is part autobiography and part imaginative narrative. There would have been an inordinate number of difficulties in in tracing (laughs) your past in some ways. Yeah, look... The
2: reason the book ended up the way it did was uh, purely practical. At the beginning, I set out to find the stories of my grandparents. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors who could not um, bring themselves to tell their stories, um, who were essentially traumatised into silence. Um, And after they died, I really wanted to know them. These were people I was very close with and that I loved greatly. But it became apparent quite early in the piece that... They just were no. They they had comprehensively erased their past, right? So there there really weren't records to be found, and so I began to explore them as people through fiction, um, and you know, I from what I knew of them, the little the little scraps that I heard um, from various family members or people who knew them um, about their lives before they came to Australia, and uh, yeah, so I was kind of involved in that kind of fictional uh, getting to know them uh, when quite strangely, a number of, of um, records, photos, um, people who kind of surfaced um, all uh, appeared and were able to further my quest uh, to find the truth, so to speak.
1: Well, the truth is masked by the fact that, okay, grandparents and people that have gone through the trauma wouldn't want to tell. And no. how can you tell to somebody who's never been through it is, is one thing. And on the flip side, how can you... Uh, so how, how how can I sit my grandparents down and say relive your trauma for me? Yes, you know? there are lost records um, and hidden stories, inaccurate accounts. Mm-hmm. So it's almost impossible to know the truth.
2: Well, it is. Uh, it, it, it's 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 possible, I suppose, to get something that uh, is close to the truth. Um, we we do have. Uh, I did find along the way uh, documents. Records photos, which probably speak more to, and there are, a lot of them are included in the book um, that that speak more to and I use this in inverted commas
1: you know the truth than say the stories I would hear that hearsay, I hear say, and that sort of underpins this novel anyway. Uh, that whole notion of what is the truth. Yes, absolutely. And so let's get on to some of these stories. You have your great-grandmother, Františka Rubikova. And oh, no, I rolled the arm, my apologies. <laughs> Rubikova. Rubichkova. Rubichkova. R- yeah. Rubichkova. Your great-grandmother, who was a Gentile.
2: Yes. So she uh, converted uh, to Judaism to marry my great-grandfather. Uh, he repaid her sacrifice by being a drunken gambler who ruined the family, essentially. Uh, and she, then when the Nazis uh, occupied uh, Czechoslovakia, she found herself in a very strange situation. To the Nazis, she was not Jewish. Her Because it was by blood. It didn't matter if you converted. You could have been the most devout convert. Anything. To the Nazis, you were not Jewish. Um, her, two, her four children uh, were half Jewish, Mischling, And uh, her husband obviously was Jewish, and so yeah, she she was in this weird situation where the family was literally split in half.
1: Well, what happened to her two oldest? So the two
2: eldest daughters. So the rule was that if you were above the age of fourteen, you were taken to you were deported to concentration camps. If you were under fourteen, you were you stayed in Prague as a Michling. So the two eldest daughters, my grandmother was the oldest of them, uh, went to. Went to Theresienstadt and onwards to other camps afterwards um, with my great grandfather. And the two
1: younger daughters uh, stayed in Prague with my great grandmother. But living with the knowledge, Frantiska, living with the knowledge that those girls would be eventually taken away from
2: her. Yes. I mean, it was, it, you know, it was a uh, sort of Damocles kind of thing. You know, you, you were just, she was firstly trying to do whatever she could to make sure that her eldest daughters had supplies enough to survive whilst also knowing she's living on borrowed
1: time with the younger ones. And the courage, because she does, in fact, confront the authorities to try yes. and get supplies through, including the ring. So, exactly.
2: So she basically, and I found this out, I did a road trip with my cousin, who was the youngest sister, the youngest of the four daughters' son. Um, I did a road trip with him from Prague to Auschwitz, which is also, it's in the book. But uh, in, the, in our conversation, he said, oh, did you know that um, Francisca, visited the two eldest girls in Theresienstadt in the Czech concentration camp and I was blown away by that obviously and I found out that she that is where she gave my grandmother a ring which was basically saying look if it comes down to it if you have if, if your life is in such jeopardy if it Use, use this ring as your, you know, it's valuable. And, you know, every, all, all the, the guards, are, there was bribery going left, right and centre. That's just how, how, it, how it worked there. Um, you know, here is your ultimate, uh, I don't know, artefact to to buy your life, in, essentially.
1: A, a form of survival in yes. many ways. And it raises then the spectre of what people had to do to survive. Yes. And,
2: uh, I mean, this for us, for me, particularly with my grandmother, it was very difficult because... She, the ring was never traded in mm. right so then the question comes what did she do to uh, to survive she was you know uh, uh, like it was always sort of whispered and rumored and it's known you know the different lengths different women went to particularly younger women went to survive which were you know
1: but naturally th- enough it's something you can't necessarily talk about no. or raise
2: no. so she never context. she never would have spoken about it and also i like In writing about it, I only ever allude to it because I'm not going to go out and say something that is, I suppose, that extreme if I don't have absolute evidence of it, even though I suspect it.
1: Again, so you've got this notion uh, also then of a created reality, what took place. Theresienstadt, in many ways, is a created reality as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the idea of Theresienstadt,
2: at the end of the day, was to be a show camp for the Nazis, to be able to show world authorities, particularly the Red Cross, to you know to to allay their fears of the rumours they were hearing about the treatment of Jews in Nazi Germany. And so they had Theresienstadt, and, and they, they, the Red Cross actually came twice to Theresienstadt to inspect it, though they were taken on a particular route that was guided by the Nazis, which if they'd even had, you know the slight inclination to to veer off at any point, uh, they would have seen the squalor that was really there, but uh, they were quite happy to be, you know, take the blinkered path. Um, and it actually even extended to, in Birkenau, uh, Auschwitz, the, de- the death camp of Auschwitz, Birkenau, um, there was a sub-camp, which was called the Czech family camp, which my grandfather was in, which was also in simile to Theresienstadt, um, it its existence was based on if the Nazis weren't sa- sorry if the Red Cross weren't satisfied uh, by what they saw at Theresienstadt and wanted to see one of these rumored labor or death camps they would take them to this subcamp in Birkenau um, which would uh, which where the Jews were in
1: better conditions for want of a better term than the rest of the, um, the prisoners. Another thread we've got then is your grandfather uh, Jakob Brandt. And the so-called museum of the extinct race, which is another yes
2: reality that we've got here. Well, it's funny. Like growing up and visiting Prague, I used to go quite. My great great grandmother died when I was thirteen, so I visited her quite a few times when when um, Czechoslovakia was still um, communist, and and I used to go there a lot. And you would always hear, for when you did the Jewish museum guide uh, uh, tour, uh, that you were that. There was this museum of the extinct race, and the idea was that um, the Nazis were forced the Jews to collect artifacts that they would put in a museum in Prague after the war to show, look, here is this, uh, here are the artifacts of this this uh, degenerate race that we have rid you of, and you you know thank us, etc. And it's it's the great kind of I don't know specter of Czech Jewish memory, but the reality is a lot more complex. There, there actually wasn't a Nazi plan of that kind at all. Um, the reality is that there were that, that the Jewish museum workers in Prague realised quite early what the Nazis had planned, that they were there to wipe out the Jews. So they convinced the Nazi authorities in Prague to ship all of the artefacts from all of the occupied lands in all of these small satellite communities that were being wiped out, ship all their artefacts to uh, Prague where the Jewish Museum would sort it and they would uh, save it for for after the war,
1: irrespective of what the outcome was. The Museum of the Extinct Race, I say. This is it? A phoenix? Yes. After the war, everyone was searching for meaning. Why? How? And here in Prague particularly. What to make of this great collection of books, of artefacts, of treasures stored in our synagogues? Why would the Nazis do such a thing? They allowed a functioning Jewish museum to stay open under their watch. It simply did not make sense, unless there was a greater purpose. And... So that false reality hmm. that then got passed down over time yes. and reported. And look, it, it has a fantastic, uh,
2: I don't know what you would call it, uh, a, a, a romantic attract, you know, attraction, this idea of this Museum of the Extinct Race. It's a, it's a great um, concept.
1: And Jakob Brand was one of the people responsible for looking into these artefacts and attesting to their authenticity. Well, so it was claimed in an article that was published about him after,
2: the, uh, after he died What I found out was what he actually was involved in was a group called the Talmud Commando, which was a group of scholars who were selected from within Theresienstadt to sort through books that had been um, stolen from around the occupied lands, not for use in a museum, but A, to sell to uh, the Ameri- to American collectors to help fund the war effort, and B, for a representative library that was being set up so Nazi scholars could learn from the sources about Jewish thought.
1: And this gets us to uh, the uh, eponymous title, uh, The Book of Dirt and there's a story involved in this if you can contain it and encapsulate it because it goes into jewish tradition and mythology as well yeah so look my my thing
2: with with the book from a very early stage was um i I knew that none of the people in the Talmud commander only about five of them survived the war Uh, none of them spoke about it none of them spoke to each other and it always really just fascinated me why they wouldn't talk what was it that they could have found or done that 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 relegated them to silence. And so I came up with this idea that in amongst the books, my grandfather came across a tattered sidur, a prayer book, um, which when he opened it, it had been hollowed out. It had a small pile of dirt. And that it might have been the heart of the Golem of Prague, the famous. Now, uh, you're going to have to myth.
1: explain the Golem,
2: right? So the 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 the, the myth of the Golem of Prague is that in, there was a, a great Rabbi called the Maharal, Rabbi Judah Low, um, in the 1600s, and he created a man from dirt. Um, using uh, incantations and mystical texts and what have you. Um, And this man of dirt, the Gollum, uh, was, depending on which version of the legend you subscribe to, his kind of manservant who just helped around the house but also uh, kind of went a bit awry. Um, The the more... uh, I suppose the one that a lot of people really like to 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 cling to is that it was this great defender of the Jewish people and at a time when things were really bad for the Jews and he uh, the golem basically saved the Jews from some sort of uh, uh, you know a pogrom or something of that sort the reality is at the time that the Maharal was alive, uh, was alive things for the Jews were actually quite good but um leaving that aside so this idea that at the time of greatest um, desperation and, and, and when things are really looking terrible for the Jews, that there might be some mystical, mythical creature from Jewish legend that, that could be there, that might be able to save them. Um, because actually, it's, it was a common thing in Prague at the time of the war. Uh, people were going, you know, we need to reanimate the golem.
1: But here we go again with this notion of tradition, of survival and escaping into myth, yes, and such like, and so another form of survival. Some people retreated into this and yes. and lost sight of reality. Well, absolutely, and these like I mean I just I always I hear so many.
2: I've spoken to so many survivors. I've heard so many survivor stories, and to me, you know, every story and every response to surviving um, is completely. Uh, different and completely uh, I, I understand it fully um, and you know some people did you know it, I mean to to confront trauma of that level um, you know if it drove some people mad of course that's completely
1: understandable you mm. know but what you end up with sort of at the end of the book is this uh, what is basically enigmatic uh, these legends have a way of growing into themselves multiplying and so the legends take over so we've got Um, Dasha, who's your grandmother, returning the ring, so as we've already discussed leaving it unclear or uncertain what she had to do to survive you've got um, an account of in fact, uh, Jakob being dead, reported at one stage he'd actually given the dirt he'd found in the Siddur to someone to return it to to his best friend who actually dies and one of the last lines before the the um, the epilogue, but Jacob walks inside, approaches the door and knocks. He survives somehow, and yet his death has been reported. Again, sort of uncertainty. But also, you have in your epilogue the line, within a few generations, almost all of us will have been forgotten. Mm. And this notion it's that- actually the opening line of the book. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this notion then of what we remember, what we forget, yeah, and how these ideas will or will not be preserved and what disappears into myth. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is the thing. Like I, I, I always, the thing I've learned most from
2: this book is that, you know, how much do we poss- how can we possibly know about the people we love? Right. And we do the people we love and the further down the generational, you know, line you go, um, you, you're actually creating them. This is the, the, they are creations. Of, they're golems. They—they yeah, they are creations of your own. The—the um, the resemblance to reality is only—you know—it might only be slight.
1: right? And how indelible then is the
2: past? Well, I mean, this is—or <laughs> how yeah. mutable is it?
1: Unchangeable.
2: And I mean, that's—that's that's, absolutely it is. And—and—and and, and, and it's because your very involvement in writing this book—it's
1: your own story. Yes. Plus-
2: and I've created them. Like this is the thing. Like how 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 close are they to to what they really were? I I I
1: can't tell have, you for sure. Do I have a golem sitting next to me? Quite likely. <laughs> and, <hey>. Well, <laughs> this brush my forehead. <laughs> see if I. collapse. Bram, unfortunately, Bram, we're going to have to end the conversation there. But it's been a fascinating oh, you, account. Yeah. Uh, it is. Uh, Bram's novel, Autobiography Come a Bit of Everything, is called The Book of Dirt and it's a text publishing release. So it thank is. you very much, Bram. Thank you very much.
0: Well, if I mention Hogwarts, most people would know it's a school teaching magic. But J.K. Rowling isn't the only creator of other worlds and other schools. We've got T.R. Thompson, and his series, with the first book being The Blood Within the Stone. Hello. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> You've created Red Mondas. What's being taught there?
3: Uh, what is being taught? As little as possible, really. They're trying to control mm. potential. Yeah. Um, so it's run by the nine sisters, who are...
0: But before we get into the politics of that place, your book starts with how two of the students are recruited from another town, Greystone. Life's pretty tough in Greystone, but tell us about Wilt and Higgs. Uh,
3: So the main protagonist is Wilt, a young teenager who is a thief on the streets of Greystone. It's basically a, a dying town.
0: Dying town because the tangle is coming in. Yes, the great forest is slowly eating it, basically. Yes. So Wilt's a bit older than Higgs.
3: Mm, Higgs is – I don't define it, but I I would picture him as Mm 10-ish. But, yeah, I like to leave that up to the reader, really.
0: Wilt has skill in reading minds, and he used this in a very clever theft in a blacksmith's um, um, place, forge, he proved this ability, and he had to prove it to a group of people. Now, why? What was the purpose of improving his abilities?
3: So Greystone's, like I said, a dying town, and the, the thing that keeps it alive is the Thieves' Guild, or the Fingers, they The called.
0: Fingers. Because life is pretty tough. If you're not in the Guild, you're usually a guard. And Wilt had a, a scar on his face from an altercation with Red Charlie, who turned out to be a very nasty um, thief also. Wilt sees Red Charlie obeying the orders of another without question. What did he have to lose to become a guard? <laughs>
3: uh, so like I said, this the nine sisters um, and they all have to lose a finger, so they're one of the nine.
0: Uh, Oh, so yes, he chops his own finger off. Mm, Small finger, less hurt. Ah, He does it all without question. But once a year, the Guild and the Guards get together in a game. Tell us about the game.
3: Flag ball. So um, if you wanted to picture it, I suppose it's a cross between soccer, football, basketball and rugby. Um, (laughs) Just a mad game. I often picture, you know, those... um, old-school soccer games that used to just have no rules and would go for days. A bit like that, Uh, where basically the game is just to get the ball into the goal and then to take the flag.
0: There's no rules. So everything happens, (laughs) but actually a death does stop the game. And the last mutterings from this body were, the blood within the stone. (laughs) Now, what happened in that game led these three, Wilt, Higgs and Red Charlie. Remondus, Red Charlie, to learn about soldiering. What about Higgs and Wilt?
3: So Higgs um, becomes a crafter, so someone who it's more of a physical magic, I suppose, imbues objects with properties. Um, Wilt, A wielder who can utilise the welds that join people in the world.
0: Mm, yes, now, you mentioned the Nine Sisters. They're welded into one human thought. Basically. Yeah think of it as a hive mind. Uh, a hive mind Ooh, mm. yes and they seem to have these sentinels who aren't really human helping to control but also they have cantors and in most places there's goodies and baddies and that's what happens with these two main cantors.
3: Uh, yes so Cortis is the head of the guards and he's scheming, he's Little does he know he's under control of something more powerful than himself.
0: This is a little bit about uh, Canto Contortus trying to get into Wilt's mind. None can stand against the darkness. None can stand against the army that will come, that even now begins to grow. It would be best to simply let go, to surrender. But Wilt has the power in his own mind to resist the cantor. Not like a lot of other people. A lot of other people do give in.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so well, that's part of the reason why he's been recruited into Redmondus is because they could see his potential, his ability to access the world.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I like some of the quotes about uh, that you've put into this book. There's keep your worms out of my mind, <laughs> says somebody when she feels, you know, um, wilt in, he, in her mind. Or a, a simple little thing, put your mind at rest. Now, you just can't do that in Remondus, can you? No. <laughs> It'll be taken over. So, of course, the possibility comes that if you can get into people's minds, you also can influence outcomes and it's all about the power.
3: Yeah, you can start to control what's happening now, but also a little bit linked to what we were just talking about: um, control the past mm-hmm. and uh, what has occurred, and what yeah, what the world is like now.
0: Because it seems to be getting worse and worse in Mondas, doesn't it? Yeah,
3: it's a the Nine Sisters have come and ta- taken control, but what they're trying to get to is unclear. They they don't know where they're going. They're just mm. hungry for power.
0: They're hungry for power. Well. Higgs, we mentioned him, he's the younger one who's very, very uh, agile at thieving and can get around and uh, picks up. He's rather cunning. He's actually uh, the lighter side in the story with his charms and his fun. He's got a connection with stone. And he gets powerful magic from it. He's got a Sioux stone that burns hot if you're not telling the truth, a moonsteel sta- moon blade knife, and a heart stone. What's a heartstone?
3: Mm, it's a trap he falls into from a, a fellow crafter who uh, takes a liking to him. Heather is her name. Uh, and it's it's a necklace that you put on. You link the two stones and... From that moment, she can tell wherever he is.
0: Mm, yeah. so a little romantic interest. Mark. I don't
3: know how romantic a trap like that is, but yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she thought it was. I thought that's what, how I read it. So uh, even Wilt has a slight romantic interest. Is it a romantic interest in Damie? Uh,
3: it's, yeah, I think so. Um, Damie's a guard.
0: Yeah, and and uh, how we know this is she's only got nine fingers. Yes,
3: <laughs> and she helps to train Wilt as they as they yes, go to Yes, but
0: can she be trusted if she's a guard?
3: I think so. She's still, the guards are not all bad. Oh. There's, there's a there's a the the uh, the team of Candor Cordis are the, are the bad ones, but there's Cander is also looking after the, the other side.
0: But by the end of this book, there didn't seem to be too many guards alive. <laughs> a lot <laughs> there's of them lot death and mayhem in here. But um, Damie, who is, has, as um, Tom said, helped to train um, Wilt, she knows that Wilt's head has been turned by the beauty of the sisters. There's long red hair. Oh. <laughs> Look, um, in, in here, you know, we don't get much of a description of, um, of a, a Redmondus apart from the Great Hall of Viewing. That was rather lovely. Tell us about the ceiling in the Great Hall of Viewing.
3: Um, Well, as I mentioned before, uh, have you ever been to the Forum Theatre? Yes, yes. I used to work there. And I remember 20 years ago, in my job interview, that was like the final reveal. They said, oh, and if you look up, you can see the clouds We Will looked up
0: at the ceiling and was shocked to see the sky instead. Clouds moving across a deep blue expanse. It's an illusion. The ceiling is there, but they make it look as though you can see the sky outside. Another crafter trick. At night it turns black and you can see stars moving across it. It just sounds really, really magical. I'd I'd like to have seen more architecture in Redmondas. (laughs) Anyway, so what we have is um, shape-shifting, people turning into animals, either by choice or through intense pain. And just to give you a little bit of... Climax. A wolf's howl cut th- across the courtyard from the direction of the main gates. No words were needed. The howl spoke directly into each man's heart. Death is coming. Well, by the end of the book, The The Blood Within the Stone, there is quite a lot of death. <laughs> quite a lot of death. But action
3: packed up prefer. Uh, action
0: packed, <laughs> yes, yeah. And but we're moving into the next book. Yes. So, we're just sort of taking not too many characters along with us, physical characters.
3: <laughs> physical? That's interesting that you use that word. I don't want to give too much away. No. Yes, there, is, <laughs> there are ways of surviving that aren't just physical.
0: So, Tom, when you um, did this whole series, the, this is book one of the, the wrath Wraith. Wraith cycle, you, did you have a plan... For, uh, for the whole for, series, for the whole no. i have right. only just
3: finishing the second one, and I don't know where I'm going yet. No, that's oh, not true. Oh my goodness, that's my not true. goodness! So. I do have ideas, but even when writing this one, I had a clear idea of what I wanted to get to, but how I got there—I don't. That's not how I write. I don't. I don't plan it all out. I like to let it right. take me away.
0: Yeah. Well, you can see that because you know, you have you have lost a lot of characters along the way, you know, we don't know whether I have to keep remembering them or not for the next book. Do we go back to Greystone? Yes. Ah, so I do know to have to know those characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it's hard. It's hard, you know, sort of keeping all of those characters and all that action in your mind. I, I really did like the um, the writing about the game. I thought that was really, really a lot of fun. You, as you said, I think you could visualise that in your own mind. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so I've been talking with um, T. R. Thompson about his book *The Blood Within the Stone*,
1: and I was talking to uh, Bram Presser about *The Book of Dirt*. But it does raise questions about how much license one has to create something. More yes. so in Bram's case, because you're you're delving into the so-called truth, and as opposed to something that's fictional and uh, imaginative, what license does one have? With the truth?
2: Well, the sources can only take you so far. This is the, it's particularly when you're, when you're trying to find the story, uh, stories of people, uh, particularly pe- people you love, and the records just aren't there. Um, I, I think this is actually why I very consciously called it a novel. Um, I think that was, to me, that was very important that, that, no, no one, that, that no one was under any illusion that I was claiming this to be the definitive truth, in inverted commas, of their experience.
1: But then again, uh, planning, yeah. and so you, you've got you're planning with the truth and planning with a fantasy. But at, I have to say,
2: at all of in the fictional parts of the, the reimaginings, for one of a better term of the of the of their stories, I act, most of them are based on anecdotes that I was told. So they're not. I didn't actually make the story up. Um, other than the, the, the clear, magical, realist elements, um, the, the rest of it, yeah.
1: Well, I haven't, I haven't even touched on that because you have stories that are then interwoven yes. into this.
3: But we I just didn't have time to look at it. Yeah, well, Otherwise. I'm
0: hoping, Tom, you made all yours up because I don't yeah. want <laughs> any of it. There's that
3: great line that, um, you know, it might not be factual, but it can still be true.
2: Yes, and that, also that's the thing, like in writing the fictional stories of my grandparents, I actually felt I got to a more essential truth of them than I would have by just following the records.
1: Yeah. Well, Jan, I think uh, that perhaps takes us out for another <laughs> week. Fantasy, reality, oh. we're going to return to the reality beyond the studio.
0: We will too. We'll see well, you, you all next week. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of
2: independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.